I'm Mike Durning, one of the teaching team here. We're in the amazing Gospel of Matthew, so turn to Matthew 11 today. It will also be up on the screen. Uh, this section of Matthew is about the mission we have from Jesus. Thus, it's called On a Mission. We've been in it for several weeks and have several to go. Jesus has given us a mission, and today we're going to be talking about staying focused in that mission. So I'm going to try to be good today. I'm going to try to stay focused on the sermon and not lots of silly jokes. I know my wife is probably out there thinking, don't try to be too charming or funny or intellectual, whatever. <laughs> I have to give my wife some credit, though. You know, she lives with a nerd, and it can't always be easy. She was telling me something about how she was having trouble sleeping because of a schedule change that we've made. And I told her we should totally, when I, uh, when I retire, try biphasic sleep. And she said, sure, we should do that. But the tone said, I beg of you, please don't explain that. So, all right, staying focused instead of my usual sermon, which is focused like a big fo photograph. Why is he always so blurry? All right, here we go. U.S. General George Patton was one of our generals in World War II. He was a tough guy whose style of leadership can be summed up with words, lead me, follow me, or get out of my way. That's something he said. Actually, he was far more analytical than most people would guess. One of my favorite quotes by him was, if everybody's thinking alike, somebody isn't thinking. A tank man by choice, Patton ran up an admirable record of victories by pressing onward continually. He just kept moving. So fast that the actual records of his army he commanded revealed that his army lost more men to automotive accidents than enemy arms. He pushed, he was relentless, he stayed focused on the goal. His focus, his obsession, was always moving forward fast. He famously raced ahead of all orders. In one uh, great story, Eisenhower's Supreme Headquarters messaged him and told him to halt before the city of Trier as it would take four divisions to capture it. And Patton sent back a message, I've already taken Trier with two divisions. What do you want me to do, give it back? <laughs> now Patton had his problems. He was remarkably foul-mouthed to a degree that shocked even a lot of soldiers. He claimed to be able to cuss for 30 minutes without repeating a word. Uh, he was... <laughs> He was not very understanding of those of what we today would call PTSD, reacting violently to one soldier who suffered from it. He would not fit into our modern society very well. A lot of his contemporaries thought he was our greatest general. Also, they thought he might be crazy. But I think General Patton and John the Baptist, who pops up in our story today, would have understood each other very well. While John the Baptist was not a soldier, he had the same kind of focus that Patton did, relentlessly pushing. John lived in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair, lived off the land. He probably looked crazy. When the Pharisees showed up to hear him preach, he said things like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's Luke 3, 7 through 9. How'd you like to hear a sermon like that, where the preacher berates you, calls you a snake, a hypocrite for even showing up, demands your repentance, and threatens you with fire if you don't listen? Never mind, I think I know the answer because you're at this church and not churches that still do that. <laughs> John was so focused that he didn't bat an eye before he loudly and publicly preached at a political leader for his sins. And since there was no freedom of the press, no freedom of speech, no religion freedom back then, uh, he ended up in prison. He's in prison as of the story. But John was focused. John was almost driven. 
In today's sermon, we're going to hear Jesus speak with genuine admiration for his cousin, John the Baptist. Yes, Jesus was a cousin to John on his mother's side. They probably saw each other a lot in their childhood years. In many ways, Jesus will be hinting that some of us need to be more like John. And that's what we'll be listening to today. And from that, we're going to be talking about how we can and why we should ourselves stay focused. All of this in a sermon, you guessed it, named Stay Focused. Now, let me be clear. Nobody is asking you to be like General Patton or John the Baptist in any other way than staying focused, right? You don't have to be like Patton and cuss for 30 minutes straight. In fact, we'd prefer you don't. And you don't have to be like John the Baptist and go around dressed in camel hair and live in the wilderness like a wild person. In fact, if for no other reason than smell, we'd prefer you don't. But we'd like to see all of us learn to stay focused better. Let's begin reading at Matthew 11, verse 1. Our passage is on the screen as well. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's now been months since John has been cast into prison, if we understand the timeline correctly. Much like Jesus, John had students or disciples, as the text calls them. John sends his students to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or are we waiting for someone else? Now think about it this way. If you remember back almost to the beginning of this series, we saw John bravely standing up and declaring that this Messiah king that they'd been waiting on was coming. The kingdom of God was at hand. When the religious leaders, skeptical of John, and who wouldn't it be, wild man and animal skin, remember? Uh, When the religious leaders asked him, who are you, to John, he referred to himself as the voice crying in the wilderness for people to prepare the way for the Lord. In doing so, he was identifying himself as the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy as the one who comes before the arrival of the Messiah and announces it. And then John did announce him because Jesus came down the dusty trail to the riverside where John was preaching and baptizing, and John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew who Jesus was. And then John went to prison. And he languished there. If John had had any illusions that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to overturn the political authorities, chase Rome out and have him freed, they were being shattered a little bit more every day as he waited. Jesus was just preaching and healing. Cool, sure, but what about all the stuff that John needed, like being freed from prison? Nothing. Now, don't blame John. Prison changes a person, they say. And prisons back then were worse. Nobody was going to stab you in the, with a sharpened piece of cutlery in the exercise yard back then. You could literally rot in prison. Friends had, to bring, friends had to bring food for you. The guards did not feed you. No doctor, generally speaking, no exercise yard. So who can blame John for being a bit skeptical or doubtful? Is Jesus just another preparer like him, or is he the Messiah? In short, he's thinking to himself, did I waste my life? So he sends his disciples to ask the question, and Jesus gives an answer. Now let's talk about the answer that Jesus gives, and then we'll talk about the remarkable thing that he doesn't include, okay? Jesus sends back word of a few signs. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, ran out of fingers. Good news is proclaimed to the poor. Every one of those are things that appear to the Old Testament with direct reference to this Messiah King they were waiting for. Here's one of many passages on the screen. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Here's the rest, pay attention. 
Don't miss it. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus regularly performed deeds that were particularly ascribed in prophecy to this great Messiah King they were all waiting for. Prophecies like this one scattered throughout the entire Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, John, don't look back now. Don't lose focus. I may not be doing the things you were hoping I was going to do, but I'm doing all the things prophesied of the Messiah. I'm him. You haven't wasted your life on something that wasn't real. That is the message Jesus sends back. But let's talk about what is also remarkable, what Jesus didn't say. He didn't condemn John. He didn't scold him. I mean, you think about it, John had a lot of advantages. He was a cousin to Jesus. His mom and Mary had hung out together about their pregnancies uh, six months apart. We expect his mom had heard the stories directly from Mary about the angel and the miraculous birth and the shepherds and the wise men from the east. And John had seen Jesus doubtless in early years and seen how he was different. John had every reason to believe but Jesus just calmly sends encouragement back to John. And then as he will see in the next few verses, praises John to the crowd. And there's some great news here for us. If Jesus can be patient with John, he can be patient with us. If he can forgive John, he can forgive us. If he, we have doubts, he can work with us like he did with John. This passage gives us insight into Jesus' nature. He gets us. He understands our limits. He's gracious. There is something we can always rely on Jesus for there. If there is mercy in his heart for others in the stories of the gospel, there must be mercy for us too. So our first reason to stay focused today is this. Stay focused. He understands our weaknesses. And he does. Jesus understands. And he's forgiving. Now let me explain what that has to do with us staying focused. I've known many friends over the years who used to kind of follow Jesus. Sort of, from a distance. And they struggled my, how they struggled. They did more than dabble in things they shouldn't. They leaped in and rolled around in things they shouldn't. And it seemed that it always came down to this. Once at the bottom of the heap, they would say to themselves, I've, I've fallen this far, why even try? What's the use? I'll never make it. But this Jesus that we love is not playing Santa, picking out naughty or nice boys and girls. He's not looking down on some and deciding in advance, okay, I see what you're doing and I just don't want you on my team anymore. He's saying, I get you. Hear his own words about himself from John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now don't lose the meaning in how familiar the words are. All right, This is the way in which God loves the world. He gave his only son. Why? So we can have eternal life. And verse 17 gives us the rationale. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn us, but to save us. He's not here to condemn us. Now, Jesus is clear a few verses down in the John passage that those who do not believe will stand condemned eventually. But Jesus didn't come with the intention to condemn anyone. He didn't come to look down at you. He came to save. He came to show us the Father's love. This has two very simple applications. For those of you who've never trusted in him, it's a very specific message. Your sins don't have to come between you and God. He's ready to forgive. God's son laid down his life to pay the price for those sins. And he's calling on you to believe that message, to look to the cross and live and know his forgiveness and follow him all your days. And I would like to talk to you afterward if that's something you want to do. Afterward, come and talk to me and we'll, 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 we'll sort that out. Or maybe if you're watching the live stream, can you please email into the address we'll give you at the end? Let's begin to have that conversation. For those of you who already follow Jesus, you can stay focused. 
because of the fact that you can never drift so far, never fail so much, never make any mistake so great that he will give up on you. All you have to do is keep trying because you are loved, no matter how long it takes or how, how bumpy your road is. He still loves you just for being you. So you don't have to give up. You don't have to get distracted. Just keep plodding on in the direction he's calling you. And let me lay it out carefully. I'm not saying just keep sinning or just keep faking it till you make it. What I'm saying is that God loves you very much, fully understanding all that you are and all that you do, and that he's calling you to his mission. And you don't have to worry that you're not good enough. He's already accounted for all of that. I don't know any of these people on the screen. It's just a random late 70s yearbook page to set the mood for my era. Uh, a few weeks ago, I went to the funeral home to visit a... Uh, a dear friend from high school days whose mom had just passed away. I was at their house as much as my own home for about two years in 11th and 12th grade. None of you would know him. We'll just call him Tim instead of his actual name. Tim wasn't like me. He struggled with some aspects of the faith. Uh, I was always the child of certainty myself, but he argued with some of the leaders of our church at the time about his life choices. He was not at that time leading a life dedicated to Jesus. At the funeral home, we sat and talked about how his life had played out since those days, and it hurt to see him because he's been through hard places with terrible, terrible physical problems. Multiple strokes from his young adult years on, a few heart attacks, and he's two years younger than me, or one year, I guess. It was hard to see him in this limited, weakened body, and it's confused mind that he had. And think back on him from high school days. He'd been astoundingly athletic back then. I remember playing capture the flag in the woods with him and a bunch of other guys. He moved like a panther. They lived near the tank plant, and they used to jump the fence and sneak into the grounds at night and goof around in the old tanks. And then the M1 came out, which is top secret, and the lights came on, and the alarms went off, and the guards came out, and they never went back in there again. But, but, but I can tell you, he could move. And now this. Back in young adult years, he had several scarring experiences where spiritual leadership, including the pastor of the church in which we grew up, had discounted him, made him feel unworthy, rejected. And I thought back on all the other friends I had known who had the same experience, and I would estimate the vast majority of people who were kind of on the edges were essentially driven out by the attitudes of the leaders of that church. I had to admit it, and I told them, yeah, they were really great at condemning anyone who didn't color inside their lines. I said, I think they were afraid of losing control over everyone. And he got excited and said, yes, exactly, it was about control. You know, Jesus isn't like that, I said. Because I still love Jesus, and he has about 1,000 less rules than those people did. And he loves us, even when we're in dark and messy places. I don't know if you grew up in a church like Tim and I did, and I don't know what condemnation you may have felt in the past. I don't know all the ways that you may feel that you don't measure up. I don't know if some religious group has heaped shame on you. But I do know this, that's not Jesus. Jesus wants you on his mission to save and change the world. He understands our weaknesses, and he wants us anyway. He's willing to take you where you are and work in partnership with you. He loves you as you are, but also helps smooth the rough edges that aren't really working for you or him. <laughs> he loves you as you are, but also wants to see you grow. So stay focused. So here's our challenge question. How can I keep focus on his love and understanding of me rather than being discouraged by my failures? That does not mean he doesn't desire some changes, but he's patient. He's forgiving. If he was unforgiving... If his standard were unattainable, I could understand why you just might want to walk away and just ignore his calling, but he's not like that. He's willing to invest crazy amounts of grace on you because he knows that he can obtain fantastic results in your life when you listen. The things he can accomplish in your life and through your life 
the growth, the change, the spiritual power in your life to help others. All amazing. Okay, let's read on. John's disciples have had their question answered, and Jesus goes on to talk about John to the crowd. Verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. John is here talking, Jesus is talking here about John. If he'd been a reed shaken by the wind, the kind of person who just goes along with what everyone expects to hear, all the masses of people that crowded around to hear him would not have bothered. If he'd been a fine dandy in soft clothing, nobody would have listened. He'd just be another huckster come to sell snake oil, right? Jesus says John was none of these things. He was the general patent of the prophets, if you will. But he's more than that. Verse 10, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Here Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament book of Malachi chapter 3 that there's a forerunner who comes before Messiah and John is that man. Now read verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is saying that John is a great man, perhaps the greatest one up to his time. That's a big statement. That's a really big statement. But then we have this puzzling statement afterward that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What a curious statement. Let's explain it. John was the greatest of the prophets and more because he not only looked forward to the coming Messiah, like so many of the Old Testament prophets did for thousands of years, he was also the one who actually had the privilege of pointing him out. Jesus walks up and John says, and there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he was the capstone of the prophets. In terms of privilege, among standing among the prophets, John stands highest. But here's the key. Any one of us, any one of us afterward, any of us in the kingdom have a greater privilege. We have the privilege of declaring his kingdom that already is. There's the key statement on the screen. Because we proclaim Jesus to be the Savior as an accomplished fact, we stand higher in privilege than any of the prophets or great figures of the Old Testament. We're not saying there's a king coming someday. We're not even like John saying he's arrived. We're saying he's been here. He's done the job purchasing a salvation and you need to listen to his message and live. In fact, let me tell you, here's what he's done in my life. And Jesus says that our privilege is even greater than John's. Let me be very pointed here. There is no greater privilege, no greater opportunity, no greater rank that heaven offers than our mission from Jesus. It's easy to look back on the Old Testament stories and see the amazing things God did and say, boy, I wish I could have seen that. And Jesus is saying, no, what you've got is even greater. Our mission to declare his love, his forgiveness, his power into lives is the greatest privilege anyone could ever have. And the most humble speaker of the gospel will do is of Jesus when he's afraid and trembling has a privilege that John could not even have fully imagined. So here's our second reason to stay focused. Stay focused. You have the greatest of privileges. It's an honor to be one of his, to be given the message that new life is available in Christ. It doesn't make us special except in the sense that we're people who were formerly starving, giving out bread to others who are still starving. But we should still stay focused because this is the single greatest privilege we have. You've seen how this works in your life, and it's worth sharing. And if we're not seeing that, if we're not experiencing it, we let ourselves get bogged down in silly stuff. I used to work in juvenile detention centers back in the uh, 80s, late 80s, and one of the continual themes that we ended up addressing was the self-destructive behaviors in which these kids engaged. It led them down dark paths and incarceration. 
You know what? It's really hard to say to someone, don't give yourself to that particular you know, hard drugs or whatever. You have so much to live for. To kids who perceive themselves as having nothing to live for. Very little job prospects, no real education. Sometimes living with parents who actively, actively obstruct their attempts to make progress in their lives. Their choice of substance abuse was almost understandable, though certainly not recommended. But now, now picture the opposite. The news is periodically filled with rich kids and child stars, or ones who used to be those, who are actively throwing their lives away. Sometimes losing their lives because of the way in which they are wasting it. But some of them thankfully pull out of the tailspin, but some crash forever. They have wealth, admiration, the best schools. And they still make the same choice as the kid in the worst circumstances possible. And that's still sad in a different way. Why would someone with so much regard it as so little? Because when you're living in the middle of privilege, it becomes the air you breathe. You don't notice. You become ungrateful. You get bored. And here we sit, who stand before Almighty God himself, redeemed by Jesus' death for us, with a solid, beautiful, compelling message to announce to the world. And we're obsessed instead with trivia or nonsense, things of no eternal value, things that won't even matter a year from now, video games, Pokemon, some notable bands, styles, yards and gardens, cars, professional sports teams, personal achievement at the gym, guns, political races and debates, whatever. Yeah, I know politics is important in terms of the result, but the obsession, not helpful. All trivia compared to the surpassing, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> fighting a cold here. All trivia compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him and representing him here. <clears throat> and so I include me, I'll add good books. Good books are trivia sometimes. So go ahead and take your thing that you're obsessed with and insert it in here. It's okay. <clears throat> but we have to remember the thing that Jesus kind of said. What shall a profit a man if he should gain the Crystal Charizard Hollow Sky Ridge card? Or a Super Bowl ring? Or the biggest, coolest truck? Or win the election and ignore his own soul? Or the souls of those around him? My point is that John was focused, outdoing the mission beyond distraction. Whereas it's so easy for us to endlessly obsess about trivial things. John was focused, so much so that he barely had a life outside of what he was doing to announce Jesus. And I'm not saying you have to go that far. I'm not even sure it's healthy. But I do think we should seek some better balance given the importance of our faith. Well, I grew up in a church tradition where people were made to feel guilty about their choices of entertainment or hobby or distraction. Everything was supposed to be church. And I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying this. If the Holy Spirit is telling you that your life is out of balance, focusing on too many minor things, you should listen. So here is the challenge question. How can the immense privileges I have in Christ help me stay focused on my faith? And the answer is, if we truly reflect on them, they should, and they will. I'm not saying don't have hobbies. I'm certainly not saying don't take time for relaxation. Without getting all of, into all the Proverbs and wisdom literature of Scripture, the Lord is all for us being balanced, getting proper rest, etc. But I do think our focus must always be on the mission that we have from him. Let it be our consuming passion, our reason to get up in the morning and to get through the day more than anything else. Is that you? And if not, what's it going to take to get there? Okay, verses 12 and beyond contains a puzzling statement by Jesus that I just want to quickly clarify before we go back to the staying focused thing. And I'm aware of the irony there. Uh, 
Let's read on starting at verse 12. I think it says verse 11 on the slide. That's my mistake. We are in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. <laughs> That's a seemingly baffling verse, right? What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence or that it's being taken by force? I want to remind you that Jesus is a colorful speaker. He frequently uses expressions to drive points home. If I say to my wife that the grandkids were circling like ravens, ready to swoop down on me when I arrived, I wouldn't mean that they were trying to peck my eyes out. I'd be saying in a colorful expression, they were eager to see me. John the Baptist began to announce that the Messiah was coming after 400 years of silence. No prophet had spoken for 400 years. And then John announces Jesus. The Bible says that people practically deserted the towns and cities to go hear John preach, and they did similarly for Jesus in many cities later. And I'm sure it felt to both John and Jesus like an army was assaulting them every day. These people were pressing into the kingdom. They were trying desperately to hear from God. For comparison, here's Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. See the similarity there? Same kind of thing. The response John and Jesus received was a bit overwhelming. It was almost like a siege. We'll be back to that thought in a few minutes. Reading on. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He was ears to hear, let him hear. In these verses, Jesus confirms that John is the one from prophecy who comes before him this time. Okay, that's all bonus material, so you can get the flow of the passage. Let's return to our focus on staying focused. In the last few verses, verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus here is talking about his culture, his generation, his nation at the time. They pipe a tune, and neither John or Jesus would dance to it. They sang a funeral dirge, and neither John or Jesus would mourn. Jesus is saying they weren't what the culture expected. And he's saying that's okay. John was very countercultural. He didn't move among the hoity-toity religious leaders or the common people. He went out in the wilderness, lived off the land, began preaching until passers-by noticed, hey, there's a guy out there preaching. There's no audience. We should hear what he has to say. <laughs> there were many who came to be baptized and many others who thought he was nuts or demon-possessed. Eventually, they're going to kill John. Then Jesus comes along and he's loving and kind and fun and pleasant and gracious not to the religious leaders with whom he's in opposition, but he doesn't mind hanging out with people who don't color inside the lines of their society. He goes to parties. He has fun. He shows love. He turns water into wine. And the leaders call him some kind of sinner and a drunk. Eventually, they're going to kill Jesus. This is about not fitting in. Jesus is indicating, you don't have to. John, the greatest of the prophets, didn't, and neither did Jesus. Which is not to say they were loners. Jesus in particular was very social. What it is to say that they were what they were in service to God, and if they drew a crowd or drove one away, so be it. And you see this in Jesus' ministry. He drew in huge crowds when they thought he was going to be some kind of political leader you know, who'd overthrow Rome and make Israel great again. Man, I should have made a hat for that. When they found out Jesus wouldn't wear that hat, though, it meant war. When he began to say something else, I'm in. I'm it. I'm the, king of, I'm the king. I'm the son of man in glory at the throne. You need to be so into me that it's like you're eating my flesh and drinking my blood. When he began to command obedience, 
received worship, forgave sins. That was different. A lot of people abandoned Jesus. Sometimes they flocked to see John. Sometimes folks thought he was nuts. Sometimes they flocked to see Jesus. But now opposition was solidifying. Crowds are fickle. And here's the point. John and Jesus really weren't that worried about it. I mean, I mean, sure, Jesus wants people to follow him, but not at the price of pretending to be what he's not. So here's reason number three to stay focused. A chance to model ourselves on Jesus and John. Stay focused. You don't have to fit in. And it's true, you just don't. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a weirdo. You don't have to be peculiar. But you can be just you, the one Jesus made in a particular way on a mission from God to help change the world with the message of love and forgiveness and grace. You can just be a Christian who's trying to follow the Bible. And that doesn't require you to condemn people who aren't like us. If God didn't send his, send his son Jesus into the world to condemn it, he sure didn't plan for you to do it, right? But it does mean sometimes you won't make the choices they make. It does mean you'll show love and concern a little more quickly. So what does it mean to be a genuine Christian who lives like Jesus instead of like the rest of the world expects? It means things like this. To apologize when you're wrong even though most people these days don't back down. To not cross lines to advance your career. To not be patting yourself on the back when that is the way to sell yourself nowadays. To not be self-centered, but rather to live a life that is all about him instead of self. To see interest in sacrifice, inherent value in sacrifice instead of self-interest. So here's your challenge question. What are some times that the world's praise distracted me from the mission? What can I have done differently? This is what it comes down to. What will you do? Let me take a few moments here to talk with you, to illustrate my, by telling you about my personal beef with the man upstairs. You say, Mike, that's an awful thing for a preacher to say. Yeah, but this, mean, I, this case, I literally mean the man upstairs. I live in an apartment. <laughs> and the people upstairs are weird and irritating. If you've ever lived in an apartment or a dorm or such, you know you can figure out, or, or maybe it's imagine, a lot of bad stuff that the people above you might be doing, you know? Uh, why do they have to be vacuuming, vacuuming so late at night all the time? Are they vacuuming up evidence? <laughs> what is that small pet they have? We hear its nails click-clacking on the floor. Sounds too small and fast for a dog or a cat. Are they keeping squirrels up there? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, right, Jeff? <laughs> Sometimes it sounds like there's an Olympic weightlifter up there. You know, he's just finished the lift, and now he victoriously drops the weight on the floor. Boom. <laughs> but the worst is the music. If it is music, I can't tell, because all I can hear is the bass. On some occasions, when I'm on call, in order to avoid uh, my wife you know, being awakened uh, by the alerts or calls, I sleep in the spare room, okay? This puts me immediately below the 20-something young man who has chosen to keep his woofers on the floor immediately above that room. I think they might even point it down. And he plays it all night sometimes. One time I went up there at 3.30 in the morning and knocked on the door and said, could you please turn that music down? He said, no problem, I'm leaving for work now anyway which didn't address all the other nights at all. So, so this resulted in a bit of a war. I had to wear industrial earplugs when I'm in there in order to sleep through his music, which means that I have to have my on-call alerts set as loud and obnoxious as possible to hear them through the earplugs. Yes, that is the red alert from Star Trek. Thank you for noticing. Which of course, of course meant that he had to turn his music up louder so he didn't hear my alerts. You know what? It doesn't bother me anymore. Uh, you know, I learned to sort it out. 
Of course, the earplugs made a difference, but they don't make all the difference. Somehow my brain has learned to sort out the noises. I'm not awakened by his music, but I somehow never miss an alert. My brain has learned to listen for the alarms it needs to and ignore the other noises. There's a profound spiritual lesson here for us. We need to listen for him and not be so worried about the noise from the distractions of the world around us. Their empty glitter of their toys, their priorities, their emphases cannot be the center of our attention. One of the titles that I originally proposed for this sermon was a, a different drum. Because there's an old saying that someone who is unique marches to the beat of a different drummer. It comes from Henry David Thoreau's Walden, the only quote I'll ever read by him. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he wears a different drummer. I'm sorry, here's a different drummer. That was certainly John, and it was Jesus. And it needs to be each of us. You have callings from God. They are personal to you. Every one of you has one. For a lot of the stuff of life, they're the same for each of us, though. Live life as holy as we can. When we can't, repent, be honest, try to do better. Show love. Put others first. Trust God's way over our own. Then there are the detailed ones for each individual. I'm called to preach. You may or may not be. But you have things you can do for God that he's called you to just as surely. And God calls upon us to live our Christian life in community. We gather to worship and learn like we're doing this morning and we encourage one another. But in the end, even just each of us has a drummer that we hear. And in the end, it's our job to march to that beat that we hear, whatever those around us do. If your drummer is your generation, riches, popularity, even the beat of a particular church or religious movement, you're doing it wrong. This is it and it's this simple. I listened for my drummer and that's my focus. In an era when leadership consists of taking a poll and parroting whatever it says. In an era when most people get their opinions from the latest clever meme posted on social media. In an era deeply divided so that any expression will have 50% of the culture angry with you. In an era when your future is supposedly determined by how many likes you get on a post in social media. Be the one who doesn't hear and doesn't care. I'm not talking about being edgy and different for difference's sake. I'm talking about recognizing that there are things deeper, more meaningful than fitting into the crowd. I'm not talking about being a social oaf, insensitive to the world's issues with us. I'm talking about recognizing the standard of my behavior as him, not them. The priority is him and the mission he has given us. One voice, we hear his voice. One heartbeat, our heart beats along with his. One passion, what he cares about, we do and to the exact same degree he does. One love, a love for him from which all others flow and are refined. Stay focused on the drumbeat. Stay focused on the mission he gave us. Stay focused on him. Let's pray. We marvel, Lord, at your love and your care for John, one of your servants, and what an example he is of the ability to stay focused. And we want to be that person too. So help us, Lord, at times that we may be distracted to turn our eyes to you and listen to you, our drummer. In Jesus' name, amen.